Heavenly Father, we come before you with the joy of knowing that what we are looking at is not just some ancient writings, not even just some great wisdom, but it is the very words of God given to us that we might know who you are, we might rightly understand who we are and how we should relate to you and how we should relate to one another. And God, as it has come with the inspiration of your spirit who also dwells within us, we pray that you would work in us and form in us that which is your will, that we might grow in our sanctification, that is, we might grow to become more and more like Jesus. So help us to to put into practice the things that you bring before us, knowing that everything you give is a wonderful, good gift. And Lord, we ask that you would work in us to change us, to make us more of the people that you create us to be in your image. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, yesterday, we had a bit of a last-minute clean-up of our house. Our house is on the market, and it's first open house is... Um, the upcoming Saturday. And as I was going around, I did something out the front of the house and I noticed that our neighbour's dog had escaped. Now it's just a little tiny little poodle, maybe cross something. And I couldn't see how it got out, but I've had some experience with this dog before. And one thing I know is it likes me when its owner's home. It doesn't like me if the owner's not around. But I know enough to think that I wouldn't be that happy if my dog got run over. So I wanted to do everything I could to bring this dog into the yard. Um, it wasn't going to let me go anywhere near it. But I thought if I come from the street side, then it's, if it's going to move somewhere, it's going to move towards the house and the gate that I'd opened up. So it would go back through. And just when I was starting to make some progress, I got them down towards the house. I thought, yeah, just need a bit more coercing out through the gate. Then in comes the owners and all was good and everything was happy. And as it ended up, what was just wrangling a dog ended up being a fantastic conversation with one of our neighbours that we'd had a lot of interaction with. Uh, While we were living there, we'd had them and their family around uh, for dinner. And as we're having that conversation, she's always been very open talking about everything. Sometimes you might think a little bit of overshare. But she was talking about a recent experience, how she'd lost her job, how things were just really looking terrible for her. And where she was sharing that with someone that she was having a conversation with, that person she'd spoken to said, haven't you checked your voicemail? I left a message on there three weeks ago offering you a job. And not only offering her a job, offering her a job in the area that she is most passionate about that she wasn't working in previously. And she's not a Christian. She's had, I'm guessing, some churchy background. And just the way that she spoke of that as being something that God had done. It was a very interesting conversation. She saw that as being something, a blessing or a gift of God had done. And it brought us into a conversation where we began to talk about how all good gifts come from God. And God's got so much more in store for you than just helping out in life circumstances. And even though we're moving to another, oh, we've moved to another house, like she expressed that she's really keen to keep in contact when we're in that neighbourhood to visit and she'd like to come around with her family again for more dinners and more conversations. And it was just a wonderful conversation that ensued. That doesn't actually directly correlate to the sermon, but it, um, it goes somewhere. 
but it's an encouraging story to hear of um, things happening in our neighbourhood. She's also a bodybuilder. Um, if you're planning on joining a gym, Good Life Gym, I think it's called, in Grand Central, it's about to open up. That's where she'll be working. That was the job and that phone call that I was speaking to beforehand. She's probably a lot fitter than I am, probably a lot stronger than I am. But in our society, how weird would it be? Like she actually said in things, talking about her body being a temple, she probably didn't understand that expression initially comes from the Bible or what that actually does mean in its full context. But imagine how odd it would be if I said, hey, you've done pretty good. You should do heaps more. You should, you should get buffer and fitter. Like we don't sort of compute that, do we? We, we might think about um, affirming someone in something good that they've done, but it's not natural to us to think when someone's done something well or has achieved something to then encourage them to do more and more of it. But over the last number of weeks, we've seen Paul regularly encourage the Thessalonians in things which they are doing already, and he says, I want you to do this more and more. Today he's focusing on their love for one another, that it might abound more and more. When Paul spoke about his first visit to the Thessalonians and his ministry amongst them, he spoke of it in this way back in chapter 2. For you know how like a father was with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who called you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul said when he was amongst them, by whatever means possible, he was about urging them to live in a way which is worthy of God. We saw that repeated a little bit in our passage last week in chapter 4, verse 1, where he said he spoke about us living lives that are pleasing to God. And it challenges to think about us not just being able to answer theoretically that we are supposed to live lives pleasing to God, but to ponder what does it look like on a day-to-day basis to think living a life pleasing to God? When I make decisions, do I compute the idea of what would be the most pleasing thing to God to do in this situation. Because that's the way we're supposed to be completely reoriented. But as Paul had spoken about his desire to meet with the church again, to see them face to face, he described some outcomes that he would hope to see happen during those interactions. Saying, may God himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in your love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. So he had two key focus. He wanted to see them grow in their love for one another, and he wanted to see them grow in their holiness. So it's not particularly surprising that some of the material which followed on in this letter, rather than waiting until he sees them face to face, addresses some of those things. Last week, as we looked at chapter 4, verses 1 to 8, we saw, say, this is God's will for your life. Your sanctification, that is, your growing in holiness, your growing in character that reflects more of the nature of Jesus Christ. And today's verses, verses 9 to 12, it has a strong emphasis on abounding in their love for one another. 
which kind of breaks up into two different areas. One, encouraging them to do so more and more in verses 9 to 10. But also then goes talks about the implications in the last two verses. How they apply that has impacts both of their relationships inside the church and also outside of the church. So firstly, encouraging them to love one another more and more. Given that Paul had said that when he saw them face to face, he wanted to encourage them in these things. It's not a surprise he also wants to talk about it now rather than if it's so important, he's not going to think maybe if we catch up later we'll talk about it. But if we look at the opening thanksgiving of the letter, we see it's something that he gives thanks for them already. He says we give thanks always, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and our Father your work of faith and labour of love and steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is something that they're already doing well in. We've mentioned a number of times that we naturally pray about things we know aren't going well. The areas we know are really struggling, the areas that we know that we are not doing well in at all. And we've been challenged to think about praying for ourselves to grow in all areas of our life including the areas we think we do really well. Paul had reminded them in the passage we looked at last week, God's will is their sanctification. That they would grow to become like Jesus. And guess what? As much as the Thessalonians were great in their love for one another and their their love for others around them, they haven't reached a standard that's the same as the love that Jesus has. And same for you and I in whatever area which is the strongest element of our spiritual life. It's not to the standard of Jesus to which God is at work and is his will for us that we grow more and more to become like Jesus. And because of that, it makes sense that he continues to go back to it. Saying concerning brotherly love, You don't need anyone to write to you because you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For indeed, that's what you always already are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. So they don't need to be taught anything extra. They have been taught by God himself. Now, I probably understand that in the sense of Paul had said in the opening chapter that they had received the teaching from Paul as not as the words of men, but as the words of God. So God's word through people to them. They're already doing it, but he encourages them to do it more and more. Paul's goal when he was amongst them was what? That they would live lives worthy of God. That they would please him in every way. So we'd be really mistaken if we thought a life worthy of God simply means living at a standard that's better than the people who are around us. And I wonder if there's sometimes that we actually convince ourselves that's what it means. For us to be sort of a little bit above the moral, ethical, caring standards of those who are around us. Do we sometimes settle for above average as being a standard of God's holiness? But what we'll note is we're not called just 
to live worthy of the respect of our peers, which we are called to do that, but we are called to live lives that are worthy of God, of a God who is perfectly holy, of a God who spared nothing, who gave his only son for us. When I was thinking throughout the week, I came to this sort of conclusion. I wondered that any time that we rebel against God, is the issue the attractiveness of the sin that we move towards? Or is the issue the fact that there is a deficiency in our sense of how worthy our God is and how good our God is? Because I think if we had a full understanding of who God really is and how worthy he is to be praised in every aspect of our life, I think we'd find that's actually a more compelling pull than the attractiveness or temporary attractiveness of sin itself. Later on, Paul writes to the Philippians saying, I count all the things that the world would consider to be gain, I count them loss for the surpassing knowledge of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. When you know him and you know him deeply, or as the old song says, turn your eyes upon Jesus and the things of this world will grow strangely dim. And this love that Paul is urging them to and encouraging them and commending them for, they don't need anyone to write. They've been taught by God. They know everything they need to do. They already are doing it. But he urges them, as he has so frequently over the last few weeks, to do more and more something that they're already doing quite well at. Because we are called to live, to bring honour to God, live worthy of God. God's will is for us to grow, to become more and more like Jesus in every aspect of our life. Now I get really encouraged sometimes we have visitors come along or people who are just new coming along to church and they say, I just have really loved being part of this church family. I felt loved whether it be through Sunday mornings, the way in which we interact, whether it was an invitation to a meal either after church or in their homes throughout the week, or whatever it means it is. But regardless of how well we may or may not do that, the things that we should do, they are good things, but they are things that we should also do more and more. Because if there's ever a place where love should truly abound, it should be in the family of the redeemed of Jesus Christ who have been bought by Christ to be transformed to become more like Christ. And while the majority of the Thessalonian church seems to be embracing love and growing in it, it appears there's some not fully on board in particular some areas. And the results that have impacts both inside and outside of the church. But when you read verses 11 and 12, on the surface you might think they've got nothing to do with loving one another. Depending on your English translation, some actually separate verse 10 and verse 11 into two separate sentences, but they're actually one sentence. They do belong together. What he says is, to aspire to live quietly to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands just as we instructed you so that you will walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. And you might think, has Paul just kind of got a little bit, little bit distracted? 
like he says, love one another, then the three things he talks about is living a quiet life, minding your affairs and working with your hands. How is that an expression of our love for one another? And how does doing so bear witness to those who are outside? Like where their surroundings are full of lazy people. Lazy, noisy, gossiping people. No, that's not what he's saying at all. And all these three things are actually connected. They're not three totally separate things. And what connects them together is this idea of working to be able to receive an income that you might not be a drain or dependent upon others to support yourself. Now, for whatever reasons, the text doesn't tell us, even though people have all sorts of speculations, there were some in the Thessalonian church who had decided they weren't going to work anymore. It wasn't that they couldn't work or that there wasn't work available, but for whatever reason, they decided they weren't going to work and they were going to expect the rest of the church to provide for them while they did nothing. And we see this being the emphasis because we see both the expression of working with your hands and so that you be dependent on no one. But what's living a quiet life and minding your affairs got even anything to do with the working? Because if you talk about someone living a quiet life, you might think about someone who doesn't say much. Um, it's a, those who have been studying through First Peter, it's the same thing when it talks about there, about, about, the, about the women living quiet lives. It's not about talking about them being silent, having low volume. The expression means to live in a manner that is not disruptive, offensive, or interfering with others. And what we can seem to imply by the verses we have in front of us is that those who were not working, who had a lot of time up their sleeves, were interfering with the lives of others. They were meddling in the affairs of others' lives and they were also being disruptive, expecting and, and relying upon the support of others who actually were working. The outcome was there was a bad witness to those who were outside of the church and they were unnecessary burden to those inside the church. Their decision to not work when they were able and there was employment around them had a negative witness inside and outside of the church. So is it sinful for a Christian to be unemployed? Is it wrong for Christians to accept help in times of hardship? If your heart's just beating 100 miles an hour, you'll be relieved. No, the answer to both those questions is no. It's a good thing when Christians support one another during times of need. I've seen it happen lots of times in my almost three years here at Eastgate where people have been in a a really dire financial situation and even just being able to put food on the table was a real genuine issue and as we brought that towards the church family people provided graciously and very generously we see an example in a precedent set in the new testament when paul goes around he's taking a collection for some of the christians in jerusalem who really didn't have much money the issue wasn't that some people weren't working or that they weren't able to get work The issue was that they were able to get work 
and they chose not to. They were not willing to work. Thessalonica was a busy trade hub. There would have been lots of work. But it's interesting that Paul tells them to work with your hands because in a Greek culture, they understood the idea of working with your hands to be below them. That was the work of slaves, they thought. And it's kind of fitting when you think about those we're trying to be shaped into the image of Christ who came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve, who gave that demonstration with his own disciples in washing their feet, that his followers would humbly serve for the benefit of others, not to be a burden to others. Paul set the same example. He said earlier on that he was working day and night so that he wouldn't be a, a burden to the church. But even though our passage this morning says that They've already taught them about this stuff. Paul now writes it again. And it doesn't seem to have much effect because you get to 2 Thessalonians where you see Paul write this. Now we command you, brothers, so he's getting a bit stronger on it, now they're not getting much response, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. Because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labour we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage you in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and earn their own living. So as you can see, after having spoken to it in person, written to it once, there are still some who think, we're not going to do nothing. We've come into a, a gracious, generous church family, so we're not going to do work, we're going to rely upon them. So what do we do with a passage like this? What does it mean for us on an ongoing implication? There are aspects where it directly just transfers straight across. It's true for the Thessalonians in the same way that it's true for us. That we should seek to gain employment, that we might be able to support ourselves, support our families, and not be a burden to others. But also, too, so that we can be good stewards of what God has given to us. Now that term of steward just means looking after something that is not ours. And it's helpful for us to understand that every single thing we have isn't ours. My money's not mine. My house isn't mine. Anything I own is not mine. It is God's. Paul has challenged us. How do we live worthy of God? Living a life that's pleasing to him. So we want to use what we have to support those who are in genuine need. Not to have it being drained by someone just being lazy. Now I'm sure there's many people here who have either presently or in the past or in the future have been through extended or short periods of, of unemployment. Even though they may have been diligently seeking, trying to find work. And I said this passage is not saying if you're unemployed you're, you're unchristian or anything silly like that. 
And in those situations, you may need to tighten up the budget a little bit. You might even need to temporarily take on a job which you might think is less or below what you normally do in order to be able to support your family. You may have even needed to get help from within the church or through family or whatever else, other means. But I've been overwhelmed by times when it's happened in our church family where there's a real need. And unless something is provided, they're really going to go without some everyday basics. People have been abundantly generous. It's even in our value statement as a church to have generosity and stewardship of all that we have. If we like the Thessalonians, whatever degree of love we have, we are called to be doing it more and more. Not just in the area of financially supporting people. In fact, sometimes it's, it's easier to financially support someone than to work alongside someone because it doesn't take long to put some money in a box or in an envelope or to transfer some money. Why would we do something like this? Because we belong to a God who has loved lavishly, who has been so generous, he's withheld nothing, he's given his one and only son. That is the extent of the love that God has shown us. That is the extent of the love that we're called to move toward. A God in whose image we're made in and every action should be to declare something of his nature, of his character to the world in which we live. Driven by a desire to live worthy of God, please him in every way. Because what we've seen in our passage, everything we do has an impact both on our relationships inside the church and our relationships outside of the church. There should be no place more loving than in the community of God's redeemed people who are being changed to become more and more like Jesus, who have received a love like no other that we might love others. God's will, last, last reading, was our sanctification, to grow up, to become more and more like Christ, that we might love just as Christ has loved. And when people come into a Christian community, wouldn't it be a beautiful thing if what they saw was such an intense love for one another, and Jesus did say, by your love for one another, people will know that you're my disciples that when they see that, they say, there is no other answer for what I see in this community than the power of Jesus Christ at work. That this gospel these people proclaim actually changes people. Because it does make a difference. When people hear a gospel from a people, that they see that it makes a difference and an effect in their everyday life. I just want to close with an analogy that Greg Beale puts forward where he talks about musicians. Now we've probably got a number of musicians, probably those we do know and those that secretly hide in case they get asked to do something in church one day. But musicians train and practice for hours and hours in their homes. Sometimes the neighbours might not appreciate Kyle is learning violin in a block of units. So don't so if there's units available in Sharon Court, don't take them because <laughs> someone learning a violin's a, a scary thing. But you practice lots and lots in the home setting 
in order to be prepared for the public performance. And he makes that comparison to us as a church. That we foster such a deep love within our church family community that best prepares us for the way in which we interact with those who are outside of the church. Because if we can't get it right in here, which should be the easiest setting to do it, when I say in here, I don't mean just in this building and on Sunday, but amongst our church family, then we're probably not likely to do it outside and it will hinder our witness. It will hinder our witness of what they think about us and we're called to be a people who they have nothing obvious against us. It also hinders our witness when we talk about a gospel a good news that Jesus changed and makes people a new creation, that people want to see that, that life in us. And I pray that God might work in us, that we might love one another more and more, not just so that we focus only on one another, but that that might become the natural habits and rhythms of our life, that it'll just overflow wherever we go. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we confess that So frequently we return to self-centeredness, doing what's pleasing in our sight, what helps us get ahead on our agenda. But Lord, we thank you that you gave an example in Christ of one who laid down his very life, who served and gave of himself for the benefit of others. Lord, help us to know something more of who you are, your wonderful, beautiful nature and character. That it might be easy to think about living a life worthy of a God who is like that. That it might almost seem a no-brainer to live a life pleasing to you. But Lord, we can't just do that by trying harder. The new life you've called us to live is a life that we need the enabling of your Holy Spirit which dwells within us. You have given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. You don't call us to things that you can't and you won't equip us for. But help us from having a heart which is hardened that just likes to listen to our own thoughts, the things that are easiest to hear or the uh, most self-advancing to hear. Help us to have a genuine love for one another in our church family, but a love for one another that extends well beyond the boundaries of our church relationships that actually drives us out. As we understand we live amongst so many people who do not know you or understand why it is that we consider it a loving act of what Jesus has done. So work in us and shape us that your will might take place in our life, that we might become more and more like Jesus in this world. Asking his name. Amen.